Hi, it's Dune here, your host and hype girl. And before we dive into today's episode, I want you to take a hot second to reflect. What's that passion, unique experience, or knowledge you have itching to be shared with the world? For me, it's always been about guiding you and cheerleading incredible women to start your businesses. So what's your thing? You see, everyone's got something they excel at, something they just can't stop talking about. And it turns out that one of the best ways to monetize those passions is through sharing that thing with the world as a digital course product. My life's work has been to chat with more than 600, 7, 8, and 9-figure e-commerce founders. And it's through those conversations that have led me to creating a foolproof playbook and my go-to guide for early-stage founders in the form of my first-ever digital program, e-commerce fundamentals. But it wouldn't have been possible without Thinkific. The beauty of this platform lies in its simplicity. Cute templates and a super easy to use editor. No coding headaches, no tech-induced stress, just pure focus on what matters most, the content. So if you've ever been curious about building a course to teach your passion, this is the way to do it. The genuine support from the Thinkific team turns it from this lonely, confusing headache into the most fulfilling and easy project. Go to the link in my show notes to get a free trial on me. This is Sandy Ronalds for Female Startup Club. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. It's Dune here, your host and hype girl. If you've just found us, we are so grateful and so happy to have you here. Every week, we're learning from some of the world's most brilliant minds in business, like the founder of NatV Basics, Sandy Ronalds. Sandy launched her business in 2019, and in the last year alone, she sold 600,000 units from a few simple strategies. This story speaks to the power of spotting a clear gap in the market proving out the concept, and just going for it. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to quickly mention the girl code that we introduced a few episodes back. The gist is that it's a very loose and very casual deal where if you love what we're doing over here and we bring you some kind of value or a smile or a gem or an insight, you take a tiny action every time you listen to one of our episodes. Whether that's by leaving us a review or sharing this episode on social media, Basically, anything that helps us get more ears and keep growing. It's a weird time in the world right now, and I am in serious need of my hype girls. To everyone who already does this, I appreciate you and I see you more than you know. Let's get into today's episode. This is Sandy for Female Startup Club. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sandy, hi. Welcome to the Female Startup Club podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. I'm coming in from Bali, Indonesia, and you are on Miami, the Gold Coast, right? Yes, we are. Yep. How's your day so far? Do you have any wins or oh shit moments to share? Not really. Today's been a little bit boring. Um, Not boring, but just, you know, doing the everyday things that have to get done. So nothing too crazy has happened uh, or something that's quite serious. So that's always a good thing. It's always a good thing, just cruising along in cruise control. Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) I always love to start these episodes by going back to kind of pre when you started the business, so pre-2019, to understand what was getting you thinking about starting this company and sort of the beginning of your entrepreneurial story. Sure. Um, I think it's sort of the idea popped back into my head or into my head back in 2017, I was um, a director of another company at that time and um, I was actually online trying to find underwear for myself and I was looking at all the classic brands that we actually grew up with and I was actually shocked by the lack of transparency in what they were doing for the planet and its people. So after that, I sort of thought, you know what, why don't I sit down and sort of work out my whys and what I would want in an underwear brand and then I sort of went from there. Well, we didn't launch till 2019, but it, like the idea sort of started from 2017. So it took a while to sort of, you know, get to the point of actually launching. So, What was it about underwear specifically? Like why that as a category over, I don't know, socks or pajamas or fast fashion or, you know, apparel rather? Yeah, well, I mean, fast fashion is a huge problem in the whole world, um, it, you know that is such a huge thing that sort of really needs to be looked at. And underwear really doesn't fall into, I think, the fast fashion category because you're not really wearing it to show off to anyone every day at the office because no one sees it. But it is still one of those things that people wear every single day. 
Um, and it's also one of those things that we can't recycle. So you don't go to the op shop and buy undies because that's gross and there's hygiene issues around that. So in my mind, I was like, this is really important and we should really care about the way our undies are made and how they're made and what they're made with because we all wear them every day. It also saves us from washing. You know, you might be able to get a few wears out of your jeans if you're wearing knickers, you know, before you wash them. Um, and obviously that's a much bigger garment to, you know, put through the washer and dryer or however you do it. So I thought, you know, underwear is, you know, something, again, we, we all wear every day and um, it's important to get it right. Yeah, I love that. We do wear underwear every day. <laughs> it is a very important well, garment. Not, and that's fine, but most do, I think. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. So, okay, you have this light bulb moment circa 2017. You launched 2019. So I want to talk about this two-year period of what I assume is developing the products, finding your manufacturer, kind of getting everything set up. And we we love to talk about the manufacturing piece because it can take a bloody long time to develop the product in the vision that you have. How did you go about finding a factory that met your requirements yeah, it, it is really hard and it's really daunting because I come from like skincare and makeup world. So to go into a completely new industry was really daunting. And especially because I really didn't know a lot about, you know, fabrics and textiles at that point. Um, so I literally had to do a lot of research on my own and a lot of Googling and first of all, trying to identify what sort of fabrics and yarns that I want to start working with. And then once I could nail down just the basics of where we wanted to start, um, the patterns and um, sort of styles we wanted to start with and have that sort of planned out. Um, I did do a lot of ringing around Australia to the few manufacturers that we do have. And unfortunately, none of them could do seamless underwear, which was really sad for me at that point. And I couldn't believe it. Um, but after, like at this point, I'm not shocked at all. It's Unfortunately, we don't have a huge manufacturing industry um, for apparel or underwear in this country. Um, hopefully we can bring it back one day, but it's not here at the moment. Um, so from there, I had to do a lot of research internationally to try and find, um, you know, supplies in the markets that I wanted to work with. And so um, one of our main yarns for our signature or our core range is um, a product called Lensing Modell, and that is an Austrian company um, that is really world-renowned for their efforts in sustainability and their closed-loop production systems. Um, so their closed-loop systems use reuse 99% of the waste taking tree to fibre um, back into making more. Um, so we really love that because it really lowers the carbon footprint and a water footprint. Um, and then from there, we did find our manufacturers by going over to big textile trade shows and sitting down with many, 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 many companies to make sure that they can um, actually tick all of the certifications that we need. So, you know, we need the BSCI audits to be done um, we have the safety certificates for, you know, the Okitech Standard 100 um, to make sure the, the yarns used are always safe for, for humans. So there's a few checkboxes that we knew that we wanted to hit as well before going over. So I pretty much just made myself a checklist, had all my planning ready and just sat with people to find out um, who could do what we needed. And then it still was a process after that because they all say yes and then you don't hear for them and you got to chase them up and then wait for the sampling and you've got to go through the sampling process and do revisions and go back and forth until you're finally happy with the end product to actually take to market. How long did that process take from kind of, you know, ringing around in Australia to getting to the trade shows to getting to sampling with someone that you were happy with? I can't remember exactly the time frame, but it would have been well over a year at least. And 
especially because after that first initial ring around Australia and I realized I couldn't do it here, it sort of put like a Debbie Downer on the whole idea because I really had set in my mind that it must be Australian made. And um, it sort of like shattered my dream a little bit. But then I was like, you know what, this is a really good idea. And as long as I can find suppliers that can work within what we need um, within the supply chain, so with the BSCI, you know, audits and things, um, we can still make this happen. And it's still going to be a much better option than the brands that really aren't caring about these things. And obviously, as we grow into the future, we can make it better and better and better. And, you know, if we ever get rich enough, uh, we could hopefully do it in Australia, which would be amazing. Yeah. And I think you also bring up a really good point. It's like you were set on this, you know, manufacturing in Australia and creating this product in Australia, but you had to kind of zoom out and shift the goalpost and be like, no, like, yes, that's a nice to have. And I would have loved to have done that, but still big picture. Okay. We can't do that. Let's move on and not kind of get lost or get stuck on that one thing and just be able to like iterate, iterate and move towards your goals still. But being... I guess, flexible with the process. Yeah, we definitely had to. Like it physically is impossible to do, as far as I'm aware to this day, our product here, Um, which again is really unfortunate. But it's just one of those things that it's just one piece and tiny piece in the whole entire company. So Totally. What are the trade shows? Do you remember kind of the main ones off by heart that you went to to meet the manufacturers? Yeah, so I've flown to Bali before, not gone to a trade show, um, just to have some meetings over there. Um, There is um, some small manufacturing over there, but they didn't really hit the mark for what we needed. Um, So I've also just recently got back from one in Vietnam. So the textile manufacturing areas typically are Vietnam, China, absolutely, um, India. Um, India, I haven't had much luck with yet in terms of, they're more like, as far as I can see, like good with silks. and, And so each area really has sort of what they specialize in. Um, but a good one to go to is, um, what is it called? The Canton Fair over in China, in Guangzhou, I think you pronounce it. <laughs> that can be a really good one because I've actually got um, countries from all around the world coming in in one spot and it's huge. Like you'll spend hours walking around that and it's got every single thing you could like, you wouldn't even imagine what they've got, you know, available in terms of supply at those big, big trade shows. So, Yeah, I can only imagine I went to Guangzhou a couple of years ago and I just remember like we were there for the jewelry business I had at the time and it was like for anyone listening, imagine a Westfield. So you know how big a Westfield shopping center is? Like Westfield after Westfield after Westfield after Westfield and then every Westfield would just be one thing. So like every Westfield would just be like every room and every floor was pearls. And then the next one would be jade. And the next one would be like whatever it was. And I was like, wow, the whole world comes from here. This is insane. But it was also just so, it was like an Apple store. Like everything was like an Apple store. I was like so impressed. <laughs> I had the it, best it's time. It's crazy. I remember racking up like 20,000 steps per day, um, walking around. Um, and that was like pretty average. So, and like, that's a lot because I don't usually do that much. So I was exhausted by the end of the day but totally worth it. How did you prepare for that? Like, did you have an agent or someone kind of that you worked with to help you? Yeah, um, not an agent. So definitely booked everything myself, but I definitely got a um, interpreter, uh, a Chinese interpreter, um, just to help the language barrier to sort of cut through and make sure we were talking to the right people. 
yeah, that was that was really important. And when I go to trade shows like that, I'll usually take like a like a book with like a normal sort of, and then I will literally have a stapler and a pen. And if they're like someone that I'm interested in, I'll get my their business card or stapler and I'll write notes about them. I'll like write down what their MOQs are, what their lead times are, you know, and just little notes that will make me remember them. And um, I don't do it to every single people person you sit with or you meet because there's so many, but the ones that you really think um, sound good and interest you, um, that's definitely how I sort of work it. Yeah, I love that. That's a great little admin kind of gem that you've shared there. <laughs> what are your, like, when you look back now, you know, your 2017 to now, what's that, like five-ish years? So you've kind of come a long way in the manufacturing process itself. What are your key kind of learnings that you could share for anyone who's early on in that manufacturing R&D phase? It can be really difficult um, with the language barriers um, dealing in manufacturing. Uh, for us, we have to always have our spec sheets and tech packs um, filled out. Everything has to be quite clear and easy to share. You always have to check what's coming in, even still to this day. We haven't changed manufacturers since our launch, but sometimes they just change the way they've done something. So you have to always just like, you know, be on the ball, make sure that you're um, checking everything as it comes in, doing quality um, checkovers. So we always have like our original samples and we always, once we get something in, we'll, we'll sit there and we'll start measuring and making sure that they're within tolerance and spec um, before they even, you know, hit our picking and packing area. Wow. That's so interesting that it's kind of, you know, you're sometimes I feel like you can fall into that phase of just being like, oh no, like we're in that process that's checked off, like it's all good to go. But it's it's good to know that actually every time you need to be so on top of it because who knows Absolutely. what's happening. <laughs> Especially in apparel manufacturing. I mean, we do have tolerances where it's usually within like a centimetre or so, but seamless is a little bit more, but sometimes they go way over the tolerance and that's just not acceptable because if you've got a customer and because we're not fast fashion, so we don't have something like new every few months to push onto the customer. We always have our normal basics available in the same colors so that if you bought from us a year ago, you can come back to the website tomorrow and rebuy exactly the same pair in the same color because we are just basics. We only want you to buy them as you need them and we want to have like a stable, consistent offering to you that you're happy with. So if that customer's bought something from us a year ago and they come back, we expect or they would expect um, at the very least for it to be the same unless we've actually done an update and we've actually told them about it. So it's important for us to constantly do quality assurance and checks um, on everything that we do. And we're always looking to improve things as well. So we've made a few changes to some of the um, items in some of our core ranges um, because we have got customer feedback over the years. And if we can see that it's quite a lot and we'll send out surveys to, to check with our customers, we will happily take that feedback on board and, and do those revisions um, and relaunch the product to them. Got it. Stupid question here, but what does tolerance mean? Tolerance is so, um, for example, if you've got a half waist measurement, um, so that's just half waist, we would expect it to sit within a tolerance of one, one centimetre or so. It just means that they can't go over that tolerance. So we'll have the normal spec, which might be, say, let's, for example, 20 centimetres. If they go to 23, that's not within tolerance. So we we will give them a tolerance and it will be, if we expect it to be 20, you can go to 21, but that's that's a cutoff. 
because with manufacturing, you've got humans making it. So it's never going to be perfect and exactly the same every time. And especially with a seamless product, we have more of a tolerance, which is a global standard. But even dresses and anything that you buy, they'll be they'll have their own tolerances and manufacturing standards that they will send in their tech packs along to their manufacturers to make sure that they stay within those. Hmm. Great. Learning something new every day. Love that for me. (laughs) I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the money piece, my favorite piece of most episodes. What kind of capital did you need to invest to get yourself to launch? So kind of like the R&D process, your first run of orders, your website, and kind of like up until launch day. I I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it was around the $20,000 mark. And that was just like from my savings that I sort of invested. Over the years, we've invested much more because we've actually been scaling as quickly as we can. And that always takes a bit of capital. Um, But I do believe the first initial amount of money that I had taken from my savings account or my husband and I's was about 20000 And my husband's like, oh, I can't believe you need that much money. I was like, that's not a lot. Like, Which, I mean, it is, but, you know, it you do need a bit. Um, I think it's like, it's not when you think about starting a business, especially. I, that's what I think. But, you know, I think it was just such a risk because I hadn't come from the industry and my husband's like, do you really know what you're doing? And I was like, yes, but secret. I was like, no. <laughs> just having a crack. <laughs> just giving this a go. Yeah. But I mean, we did, I did start off cheaply. Um, so obviously I was investing, I did most of the website myself through Shopify and I did have a graphic designer just help with the branding side of things and help sort of develop that. But Shopify is so easy to use these days that, you know, you don't need a developer to start off with. So you can start off on, I think they're $19 plan per month and just get it up and running, you know, until you get to the next stage where you can invest a bit more. Um, I started off my office in my mum and dad's spare room and then I used their other spare room for the picking and packing area. Um, so obviously I didn't have to pay rent there or pay any outlays apart from just some of the picking and packing equipment. Um, and so, yeah, sort of grew up from there. And once we can afford and you need the next step, then hopefully you have some revenue coming in to pay for itself after a while. Totally, totally. At what point did you start paying yourself a salary. I've had that come up a few times, you know, from business owners and entrepreneurs in my network. And it's always interesting to understand kind of like, was it based on when I hit this certain amount of revenue or from the get-go, you're always paying yourself a percentage of sales or kind of when did that fall into place for you? I definitely didn't pay myself a wage for a very long time. Um, You know, when you first start a business, you're not really making money. And if you want to keep growing your business, um, you really need to be putting everything that you're getting back into the business for growth. Um, taking profits and growth to start with don't go together. Um, if you want to be just taking profits, it's, you know, you're sort of wasting that money that could go back into the business to keep, to keep it growing. So, um, I had, I think I had like three staff members, which were all being paid a full time wage before I even paid myself. Um, from memory, I started paying myself like at the start of last year, which is, Jan. So I've been going a very long time without a wage. Um, free knickers, that was pretty much my pay. <laughs> but I was happy. I needed to employ people to help again grow the business. So I definitely saw more value in getting the right people on board, giving them, you know, a, a full time wage. And then, you know, once we we're comfortable, I started paying myself. Mm, totally. When just a second ago, you said something about, you know, it was 20 grand to kind of like get get up and running, get started. But then obviously over the years, you've needed to invest more 
working capital to keep the business going and things like that. And I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on whether that was like loans and debt or grants or friends and family or angels or, you know, your husband's salary or something like that or consulting. What what were the ways that you were able to add more working capital to the business? So I had a, a, a bit of a saving account from my last company, which I'd sold out of. Um, so I was a director and sort of a co-founder from that. So when I um, moved on from there, I obviously had a payout from there. So I had a bit of savings, which um, I could reinvest back into this business to start with. So t- I've been pretty lucky. I haven't needed any loans from anyone outside yet, um, except for you know myself and my family's banks. So I don't know if that's a great thing or not. Sometimes I speak to bankers, like I do have a, a personal banker for the business and they're like, why are you using your own money? Use ours. But I'm like, of course you want me to use yours. You want me to pay you back extra. <laughs> so I'm like, I sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll use mine and um, up until a certain point. And, but, you know, in the future, we'd, I'd love to have some investors on board because um, I'm very aware that, you know, only know as much as I know in, in business and, at some point, if I want to take it to 20 mil a year, 30 mil a year, I really need people that have been there, done that before. So I look forward to the day that investors are actually um, interested in me and the business. That would be great. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What do you think about the Australian landscape when it comes to fundraising and, and specifically for you being in the CPG kind of industry versus like, um, you know, tech or something like that? How do you, like, how do you see the Australian landscape? And like when it comes to time to raise, what would your kind of process be? What would you be doing? I have to be perfectly honest here with you. I don't know much about the landscape at all, to be fair. Um, It's not something that I've had any experience yet to date in my business career, even previously. Um, So if I was to sit here and talk about that, I would literally just be feeding you a whole bunch of (laughs) voodoo. (laughs) So yeah, I honestly, I I don't know. So um, yeah, I I think that's interesting. For Mm. me, it's something that I've started learning a lot more about specifically in, in Australia when it comes to the VC world and, you know, the many issues that we face as women. And it's such an interesting topic because I do think there is this big gap of, you know, founders, women founders who are building these amazing businesses are kind of like operating over here. And, you know, we're building different kinds of businesses to what traditional VC, especially in Australia, are investing in. So there's just a a really huge disconnect. And I'm always curious to understand, like, I don't know what the answer is, right? But curious to understand other people's perspectives and like how they're thinking about something or approaching something because we need to find new solutions. Like as founders, women founders, we know that the money isn't going into women founded businesses. That's just a fact of the stats. So it's just like this. It's a bit sad. It's just like for me, I don't even know where to start and how to get in front of investors. So that's the biggest barrier for me at the moment is like, how do I even get in front of the right investors that are interested in my style of business? Um, what do they want to see from me? Like, do they want to see my revenue? My Like, what, what are they interested in? Like, I like there's no sort of checklist to, for people like me to sort of look up and follow as far as I'm aware. So it does make it difficult. And um, sometimes I feel you don't think you're good enough yet for them to be interested in. So you sit there and you really work hard and just plot, plot away at, you know, getting it better yourself every day. Totally. That's so interesting you say that because I feel like I hear similar kinds of things from other women I know who have gone through that kind of investment phase and women who are like, you know, we're told to come back with traction and then we come back with traction and that's still not enough. And it's just, there are a lot of bias against women when it comes to to fundraising. But yeah, it's it's really something I'm so passionate about. And we're starting to kind of shift into this space of trying to understand where the disconnects are to try and see how we can, I don't know what, but bridge merge the gap. This, yeah, bridge the gap, <laughs> bridge the gap yeah. based on education, based on people in the space who also want to um, be supportive and help change, especially the Australian market. The US is, the stats aren't that much better, but there are many VC firms in the US that are investing in CPG, whereas Australia is 10 years behind the US. And so we're not as mature in that kind of landscape. But it's such an interesting, an interesting thing. <laughs> the more I learn about it, the more I get into it. I'm like, oh, this is, this is, this is odd. But anyway, let's talk about your launch. I want to talk about kind of your go-to-market strategy. I know that you've done like 600,000 units sold or some amazing number that's just like totally mind-blowing 
in the last 12 months, I think I even saw. Um, so I'd love to go back to like 2019, the launch. How are you getting the word out there and selling your products? Um, so about two months before we sort of launched, we started our pre-pipe campaign um, and we only launched with three core products in a couple of colors because I didn't want to over-invest in stock and, and work out that once I put it to market, no one actually really liked it. So, you know, we started off with a couple of um, styles in a couple of colors. And um, two months before our actual launch, we had the website up and running and we started um, pumping Instagram and sort of saying, you know, sign up to our EDM list to get early access and started really pushing out the whys and the purpose of the brand um, because I'm a big believer that people don't buy only just what you do, they buy why you do it. So a bit of the Simon Sinek stuff coming in, but it absolutely is true and um, people really want to know why they should be buying your product over your competitor and where you're positioned next to competitors as well. So, um, you know, through Instagram, we really started um, punching out what we're about and our purpose and, you know, we had already done a photo shoot so we could share a little bit about the product offering as well, what it looked like, some of the benefits of the actual product, not just the overall brand products. So um, with NatV, we have our brand pillars, but then we also have our product benefits. And the brand pillars really have no- nothing to do with the end product. It's more about like why you are joining us rather than, you know, another brand. And so on the launch date, we already had a bit of a database that we'd grown over those two months, which was lovely. And we did offer them a little bit of a discount and sweetener for joining the list that they could use once we had launched. And um, on the launch day, that worked quite well. Um, so we'd already pre-hyped everyone and, and had a nice little campaign running. I also worked with um, an influencer on the launch day or just after, and they had quite good reach as well um, with the demographic that sort of suited us for launch. Um, and that also helped us amazingly as well. And then from there, we really did just concentrate on our marketing strategy, which obviously includes, you know, Meta, Instagram, and we had a very strong influencer strategy to start with as well. Can we talk about your influencer strategy just a little bit deeper? For the woman that you started or the person that you started working with in the beginning, was that a paid um, kind of ambassador role? Yes. So I wouldn't say ambassador. Um, Ambassador, I find, is we still haven't really paid for an ambassador to this day because I think they would expect more of a long-term contract where, you know, they can only post for you and like more of a salary, I would expect. Um, So we haven't really gone down that route. Um, It was more just, you know, here's my fee. Do you agree? Yes. Um, with influencers, it's always a bit of a risk, I have to say. Um, we've had some really big wins with influencers, but then we've had some not so good um, results. And I suppose we, our influencer strategy at the moment is we always love working with micro-influencers and we don't really expect too much of a return on investment from them at all. We still always test it because sometimes we get shocked and amazed. They might have 10,000 followers and they get all these sales and you're like, wow, that's brilliant. Like how amazing is their influence and actual engagement with their community? Um, but generally we like to work with them and pay them more so for content because as a small brand, we can't just do photo shoots all day, every day because we don't have a studio at HQ. So we have to rent out this and get photographers and it just is such a big expense. So we love, you know, working with the micro-influence more so for that and we don't really expect to see an ROI on that. But then if we are working with the bigger ones that expect the big bucks, we definitely expect to see a good return on investment there. Um, and, you know, if we don't, we just think, oh, well, maybe it wasn't the right fit for our brand and and we we don't 
work with them again. But if obviously we've had a good result and we both really like each other and they're sort of loyal and 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 so we will definitely obviously work with them again. Why why wouldn't we? <laughs> we are a business in the end. So, you know, we are sort of looking at does it work from a financial um, point of view. When you work with like a bigger kind of paid influencer, what is your vetting process? Is it the people that come to you? Is it more just you identifying, oh, I love this person and I love their content, like let's just test it? Or is there something else that's more specific? There's no rule. We do obviously check things. So if we do have an influencer and let's say they've got a huge following. So what we found over the years, it doesn't matter about their following. It's really about the engagement influence they have. So you can get someone with half a million and they will do not as well as what someone with 200,000 will. Um, and, you know, one will expect they expect more just because of the amount of followers. Um, so it, you can't really guess upon that. Um, what you can do is obviously go and have a look at their comments and have a look at their content. So if you've got a lady who you know, has quite sexual images or, or whatever, that, that's absolutely fine. But what you'll find is her following is probably largely male. And the largely male following really isn't going to buy Nat B. So <laughs> that's that's a bit of a no for us because, again, there's no real point. You know, we, we're not going to be put in front of the right followers if we work with um, that style. Uh, we don't have a problem with it. It's just not going to be a good fit for us. Um, so we often will check that and we'll have a look at the comments. Um, sometimes you used to be able to buy influencers, uh, followers and comments and things like that. And you can usually tell, I don't know if you still can, cause I don't do this vetting process myself anymore, but you know, you look at the comments and if you just see like a whole bunch of bizarre emojis the whole time in stacks in comments, you, and then you click on the people to look at their profiles, you often find that they're just like fake profiles. And again, that's just not the sort of engage, well, it's not going to be real and it's not going to help the business at all. So what we usually try to look for is like really nice, authentic influencers. Um, you can usually tell by their grid. Uh, we find a lot for us that, you know, mums, um, the mums work because we just set that demographic really um, for us. Um, but it's insane that it's surprising. Sometimes you, you, you get shocked, as I said. So it's really about testing and trialing and, um, yeah, seeing how you go. And on the micro-influencers, is your strategy just gift and, again, not really asking for anything in return but hoping that they kind of post and, and getting the content from it versus an ROI on sales? It really does depend. So we, we have just – we have paid many micro-influencers in the past for their content. Um, we're not opposed to that at all. Obviously, people should be paid. But it really depends on where they're at in their following and their content as well. Um, obviously, we do have our own ideal aesthetic. Um, we have also worked with micro influencers that are just starting. They might have a thousand and obviously we're just gifting that we're not, you know, it's more so to, you know, support and help them on their journey. Um, you know, and if they take good content for us, great, we'll, we'll, we share it for them. Um, but then we've also just launched a collab, um, affiliate thing through our website, which is actually native Shopify has just sort of launched it. So we're just testing and trialing that at the moment. And um, it's actually been going pretty well. We've had um, a few people that have signed up and um, essentially we gift them for free. And then what they do is they post and they have their own discount code and each sale they get a commission um, based on what they're actually doing. So uh, that's really good for us. Love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. cool. And yeah, I guess like once you get to the point where that's at scale, 
that can be very lucrative. <laughs> well, yeah, and but it's great um, because it's lucrative for the actual um, influencer that's building their business because they're getting a commission on every sale that they make and it's all done through Shopify. So they just get paid out automatically. I think it's like every 30 days based on what they've done. And so they can work as hard as they want or as little as they want and it's actually done on results rather than me just going, okay, I'll gamble this money on you almost like that's sometimes how you feel like you're sort of taking a huge risk because you don't really know whether it's going to do really well or or not really kick off so um it's it's a risk-free thing for me to do which is great yeah I love that and so if we have to think about kind of where you are with your marketing now and what your biggest drivers are now that have gotten you to 600,000 units sold in the last 12 months, what would that breakdown look like? Obviously influencers, obviously meta, Instagram ads, but what else is kind of driving that huge phenomenal growth? It's really been those three things, to be honest. We've, um, we, we did spend a lot on meta um, over the last um, year or so. We've also got quite a good um, word of mouth through our loyalty program that we have. So we do offer all of our customers like, it depends what tier you are, but across the board, if they refer a friend, they'll get $20 once they're, well, they can give their friend $20 and they spend it, they get $20. So we got like little incentives like that to help our word of mouth. So, but mostly it's been that we haven't really invested any print media. We've only just started doing PR um, and that was last month, but everything has really been driven from Meta, Instagram um, and our influencer strategy gosh love that for you <laughs> that's <Thanks>. amazing <laughs> yeah are you playing in the tiktok space at all or um, i'm trying <laughs> we we've got it we've got a tiktok but it's not going so well um we it sort of gets ignored a little bit at the moment and um it's just a little bit different in terms of the people that are on it i feel like maybe they might be slightly younger and it's more of a platform where people go to laugh and like look at funny videos and I'm not really sure how to time women in underwear and making it funny like uh, do you know what I mean I haven't really had enough time to sit down and strategize what sort of content we should be pushing through that platform we share the same reels that we do on Instagram and they get no traction so clearly you can't just like repurpose and post the same stuff Um, but I haven't had enough time or resources to actually get that going. Wow. Well, I'm excited for you. That just means opportunity is out there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. I read that you are on track to being B Corp certified this year. And and this goes back, I guess, to your manufacturing, um, you know, earlier when you were talking about the different certificates that you need and, and credentials that you need from a factory. But what's actually the process of getting B Corp certified in Australia? And like, also like in terms of time and, and what you need to be able to do it, but cost as well? To be honest, I've got one of the ladies in the office who is part of um, our marketing, but um, sustainability side as well. And she's been going through that process. Um, I did, I have meetings with her to catch up, but from what I know is um, obviously you go to their website and you sign up and then you get all of your questions and it's quite large. There's many different categories which have their own bunch of questions you have to have proof of like your certificates and certifications and you have to write um, policies and, you know, things that you want to improve on. Um, but I haven't been in there for a while. But when I did first go in there, those were the sorts of things that 
I was looking at and sort of going through. Um, it's now with Lauren. <laughs> so um, that's, yeah, as much as I can sort of say. I know it's like a huge thing. We've been working on it for like six months or she has. And we're still sort of, we're still probably not even, you know, there for submission. So hopefully we'll get it in this year um, because it is a lot. Yeah, gosh, goodness. We'll have to get you back for a part two just to talk about the the B Corp. Yeah. We'll have to get her on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she get knows. Lauren on. She can get share Lauren on. She can, um, she can run through it all. <laughs> Shout out to Lauren for getting the B Corp ready. Love that. Yay. Yep. Something I've been struggling a lot with recently and, and a lot of founders and a lot of people in general that I know are also struggling with is burnout and this kind of feeling of being overwhelmed, especially when you're, you know, trying to do all the things. There's a million things that you're meant to be doing as a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder or small business owner. Have you ever experienced burnout? And if so, how do you deal with that while also kind of keeping the business going, keeping your staff, you know, happy and healthy and motivated as well and dealing with like, you know, family and relationship and everything else that goes on outside of the business? It can be tough. I I probably haven't had a proper burnout as of yet. Um, I find that if I'm having an off day, I'll take myself out of the office because I really don't want to influence, you know, the energy in the office with any of my team um, because I can be a bit like, you know, grumpy, I suppose, if I'm suffering. Um, So I'll often just like maybe work from home for a day or even if I have to take the day just to fully relax, reset um, my mindset, I will do so um, because I find if you don't and you just sort of try to push yourself, it will just last longer. You may as well just like get it over and done with as quickly as possible. So I like to say I have my pity party for one day at home and then I will like wake up the next day feeling much better, refreshed and ready and reset. I mean, yeah, it, it can be it can be tough, um, but yeah, that's that's what I do. I love that. I think it's so important as well to take those kind of just immediate breaks when you need it. Just what's that saying? I think it's like if you could only give 10% today and you gave 10%, then you gave 100% for that day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously if I've got an important meeting or a uh, something I, I won't I'll always get my commitments done but if it is a day where you know I've got nothing too bad on I'll definitely be able to do that from home or or take the day to reset yeah so key what is your key piece of advice for founders entrepreneurs small business owners who are early on in building their business I suppose like know your why and know what your what your purpose is going to be for the brand Definitely have some sort of plan in place um, and definitely try to get to know your customers pretty intimately so that you can deliver to them their needs and wants. How do you get to know your customers intimately? Um, I actually run the Instagram organically. So I talk to our customers actually one-to-one all day. They probably don't know that. They probably think it's someone else, but it's me. <laughs> um, sometimes one of the customer service girls might help in the background if we're super busy. Um, but we also send out customer surveys um, a little bit to sort of get feedback and, and make sure that we're on track and, and sort of getting, you know, what they think about the brand and what they feel about the brand so we really know and understand. Obviously, we get a lot of analytics these days from Google and Meta so we can sort of see exactly who they are and what they want. When you say survey, is that just kind of like a post-purchase automated email? No. So um, there's a platform called Monkey Survey. And um, it's a, like 
it just does that. So you can go in. They've already got pre-built templates if you want or you can build your own survey out. Um, so we, we build our own um, depending on what we're trying to figure out and um, we'll send it out to a sample of our customer base. Cool. Love that. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. All right. <laughs> Hey, it's June here. Thanks for listening to this amazing episode of the Female Startup Club podcast. If you're a fan of the show and want even more of the good stuff, I'd recommend checking out femalestartupclub.com where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. We send it out weekly covering female founder business news, insights and learnings in D2C, and interesting business resources. And if you're a founder building an e-commerce brand, you can join our private network of entrepreneurs called Hype Club at femalestartupclub.com forward slash Hype Club. We have guests from the show joining us for intimate Ask Me Anythings, expert workshops, and a group of totally amazing, like-minded women building the future of D2C brands. As always, please do subscribe, rate and review the show, and post your favorite episodes to Instagram stories. I am beyond grateful when you do that. 